welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, Erin Kazoo! I'm Mariah Rose! <laughs> Kazoo! <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the spooky season, but we're not doing Halloween episodes. Nope. Not, we're not like anti-Halloween at all. I just... I don't know. I guess we had other things going on. Well, actually, we probably should make an announcement here. We are transitioning this podcast from 80s to pure Hugh Grant. Because today's episode is about a boy. Mm, worried about a boy. Okay, that's going to need a lot of context because you're getting way ahead. I know. I know that I am and I refuse to put it into context. Okay, well, then I'll do it for you. <laughs> so this is Laser Graves, a podcast about the 80s, if you're joining us for the first time. Uh, my co-host, Mariah, tends to be non-linear in thought. I'm, no, I'm mysterious. Oh, is it's that what exciting. it is? exciting. Okay. <laughs> and I'm the one that gets to constantly rein it in. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so about a boy will make sense in probably halfway through our episode. May It'll barely make sense. All right. Well, if you are returning, thanks for coming back. We appreciate it. Um, before we get started, a couple little side notes. One is I recently joined the gang over at Reconcinimation again. Mm -hmm. Our friends run a really fantastic podcast, taking a look back at movies, seeing if they hold up. And I've been on there several times, and I just recently guested on there again looking at A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, which is a very interesting one in the franchise. So head over to Reconcinimation if you're not already subscribed um, and check them out. Subscribe, give them their support. They run a, a really great show. So I had a good time and I thought I would plug that real fast before we even got started. Well, and honestly, we need to take a minute here and give you some uh, finger snaps. I can only snap with my left hand, so... Uh, finger snaps to you for going solo without me last time. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, I was truly sitting on the beach, toes in the sand, watching our children leap through the waves while you were toiling away here between podcasting and your real life job. So I appreciate it. It was really fun to listen to. I, I listened to it on my way back because I was missing you a great deal. It felt very strange to be without you, but you did such a good job. So thank you for picking up the slack while I reclined in the sand. Yeah, well, anything for my babe. <laughs> but it was really weird. That's the first. Okay, so for Patreon subscribers, I used to do a feature called The Chill Factor, which was a look at film composers. Mm -hmm. And that was a solo series. So I would just do it by myself. Other than that, though, I've never done an actual episode by myself for Laser Graves. And what I found interesting was I kept pausing. I mean, I had to edit it out, but I kept pausing waiting for your comments or reactions and you weren't there. So I was like, oh, I guess I just got to keep going in my notes. Two things. One, as I listened to it, I sensed your pre-pause because we're, you know, we've been married for a million years and I like inhaled to respond <laughs> and number two i imagined as i was listening our whole setup now but my mic just like a hot mic just sitting here vacant yeah i didn't want to say anything but i did create a dummy of you with your clothes i pulled sure. the skeleton in what's mm. the skeleton's name josie josie <laughs> I put Josie here with your clothes on and I just set it up in front of the mic. Mm. And then I weekend at Bernie did. I created a pulley system where mm -hmm. the, you know, the arm was attached to a string. Mm -hmm. And then when I felt like you wanted to interrupt me, I would just pull it and you put your arm up real quick to stop me mid thought. Yeah. It was very realistic. It's very much how we work. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So back to our podcast. Oh, this one's actually been brewing for a long time. We mm -hmm. started research on this boy, a while ago. And mm -hmm. then um, it just kept getting pushed and pushed because it's a, a lot to tackle. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to finally be getting to it because as far as 80s pop culture and personalities go, this is a heavy hitter. This is not like some fringe artist that we're doing. This is like one of the biggest ones you can do. And it was a lot to tackle. Well, I think we came up with the idea when we were doing Strawberry Switchblade because they were the female version. Yeah. And I think that's where this started. So right about that so? time. I'd yeah. say there's a similar interest, but I would say as far as over the top 
personality maybe cindy lopper would be more of a female version oh no but they when we did that episode they had been compared to him as the female version and i think that's when we decided he's been on our list obviously forever but that's when we're like we need to just do this thing yes so today's episode buckle in because it's a wild ride we are going to be discussing the life of boy george welcome back to the program ladies and gentlemen Uh, With his band Culture Club, my first guest had a tremendously popular hit called Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Their latest recording is called I'll Tumble For You, and uh, we have a moment of that to listen to and watch right now. Do so, won't you? Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, the founding member of Culture Club, Boy George. Okay, we say Boy George specifically because it's not just about the Culture Club. It's actually, this. Is what interests me about this is the foundations of who he was prior to the Culture Club, his time with them, and then afterwards, because he's just a really fascinating character. He's a... Yes, he's a personality. He's a true eccentric in First this world. First and foremost, yes. <laughs> Destined agree. to be famous. There was no question when you start looking into his past that this path was going to unfold in some shape or form, no matter what. Yeah, he was never going to be like a shrinking violet. This is a person who is meant to be noticed. Absolutely. And boy, was he. Boy, was he. Let's get just right into it. And let's talk about who this person was. All right. So he was born in Kent, England in 1961 in June. And he had this like super unassuming beginning. And he is the second of five kids. So yeah, like right in the thick of it. His family is Irish Catholic. And let's just say his family situation is incredibly complicated. I mean, I'll get into it a little bit here, but overall, it's it's rough. It's very rough. He's Irish, correct? Yeah, Irish and English. Okay. Um, yeah. So his mother, actually, her his grandmother had, has this whole story that's crazy, but we'll skip past that. Uh, his mother, had, when she was a teenager, had a son named Richard out of wedlock in 1957. And she was living in a smaller town and moved to London with her son to get a fresh start because there was a huge stigma at that point in time about being an unwed mother. Sure. Yeah, worldwide. I mean, really, that was a yeah. big problem in America, too. And so it was there that she met and married Jerry O'Dowd, who was a bodybuilder uh, when oh, they met. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, that would make sense considering what's to come. Okay. But by most accounts, Jerry was an incredibly abusive father and partner. Yeah. And together, the the pair had, as I said, five children. So it's weird because in the... There's this half-brother, but they never count him as, like, part of the family. And I couldn't really... I mean, I made, like, a 8% effort trying to figure out what happened with the older brother and, like, how involved he was with the family. Because he's only a few, few years older than Boy George. Was all of, were all of his siblings um, boys? No. So I think he, he had a lot of brothers, correct? Yes. One sister. The uh, I think the youngest was a sister. Okay, because he mentions that a lot, that he, and we'll see this, he was a scrapper. This will come as a shock to most people. Um, but he oh. grew up having to learn how to fight because his brothers were definitely scrappers. Yeah. And so I was surprised to find that out, too. His exterior would suggest... That he has no interest in physical altercations, but turns out he can throw down. Boy George is a force. He can and, and a, he will. He's a big dude, too, in real life. So, um, yeah, be careful. Yeah, and I actually wanted to take a side note just because I found this personally kind of fascinating. Um, Boy George's youngest brother, Gerald, is schizophrenic. And he, in 1995, was convicted of killing his wife during a schizophrenic episode. 
Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Just a side note, but it kind of adds to this family story that is really rough. I mean, it just wasn't good. Yeah, it really was bizarre. And if you would, you know, we're about to get into the foundations of who he was. Mm -hmm. But if you would like to see this in movie form, we one of our sources was a surprisingly interesting watch. Yeah, uh, Worried About the Boy. It's like a made-for-TV movie. And I think it was just a UK. I don't think it even came on in the US. But you can find it on, I don't know, Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. Yeah, I don't remember where we watched it. Maybe it was Tubi or something like that. But we were just looking up for documentaries when we were doing research. And at first, I thought this was a documentary. Then we started watching it. And it stars... Boy George is played by the guy who played Nikki Six in The Dirt. And he does a really good job. Yeah. And I expected this when we started it to just be like a cheesy TV movie. But I actually found it to be really fascinating. And it has nothing to do with the Culture Club, really. It really is it about just, his early years. Yeah, just a small section. So if you want to know, I would say really see a visual of what what his early years were like and what... England was like at the time and stuff. I we highly recommend that. It's a, yeah, it's it a fun. quick watch. Yeah. So in general, the theme of George's childhood is pretty much chaotic. And he was eager to get out on his own. So when he was a teenager, he got really into glam rock. And later, obviously, the new romantic movement. He left home. This He was over it. I think uh, probably his parents were starting to become uncomfortable with some of the changes that Boy George was exhibiting that weren't maybe in line with the Irish Catholic upbringing that they had in mind for him. So he left his home and stayed as a squatter in various places throughout uh, central London. Yeah, he was really caught up in that whole punk new romantic scene that was emerging at the time. And he already had a pretty good flair for fashion and makeup and stuff like that. So I I was curious. It seems like his mother was very supportive of him, but I don't know if his father was very supportive. I think they loved him, but they're both complicated people. Complicated people are going to raise a complicated person. Yeah. So the it's just volatile. Even if there's love, there's not... It's not healthy. Yeah. And to set the stage of what he was influenced by, he is openly will say this, no problem, is that he was obsessed with David Bowie. Yep. So that's really where the foundation comes from, is yeah. already being able to identify with some sort of fluid gender identity mm-hmm. and then take it really to the next step. Yeah. But he also like, he just like glam rock in general. He loved like Mark Bolan. Yeah, for sure. And later like Susie and the Banshees and stuff like that. Obviously not glam rock, but you know, he just was into that whole like... Big look, big, big tood. Big personalities. Yes. So he's living as a squatter, and it was around this time that he befriended Marilyn. Right. So Marilyn is a persona of Pete Robinson, and I actually really worked to try and figure out the pronouns for Pete Robinson. And it seems to be Pete Robinson goes by he, uh, but I'm not sure. So Marilyn was one of the group called the Blitz Kids. Marilyn it sings and mm. dresses like wild guess Marilyn Monroe. Yes. <laughs> Quite well. And you can yeah. you can look look up Marilyn yeah. great. A pretty uh, interesting group they had. Yes, yeah, so the Blitz Kids uh, are younger patrons of a club called the Blitz. The Blitz itself was a club that I think was only open on Tuesday nights. And it was like the hot spot for what was the burgeoning new romantic movement. Steve Strange and Rusty Egan were the hosts of this place. And it was really like super high profile weekly event. And Boy George, Marilyn and their group of friends had like these highly curated individualized looks. So they were like let in and became maybe baby celebrities in this small little arena because their look was so over the top and drew attention to the club itself. It looked very much like avant-garde theater. Like, yeah. They looked like they were about to be on stage performing something, but they weren't. That was just how they walked around. I know. It's really fun to look at the photos from the, this time of his life. Mm-hmm. Because I, I feel like sometimes 
we feel like things get blown out of proportion as time goes on, but they really were this over the top right away for him. Like he was just living this super eccentric life. And uh, it's really cool that a lot of this was documented because they were such kind of scenesters at the time. Mm-hmm. All right. So as you said, all the while, Boy George was infatuated with the music of David Bowie. He was androgynous. He liked the cool style. And he was drawn to what he described it as a bohemian lifestyle. So he really liked that whole vibe. And he was changing it, obviously, to fit the times and his, his own interests. But it was his style that sort of drew attention and drew people towards him more than anybody else in his little group. He was so over the top. Yeah, he really went all in. And we'll get into his sexuality later, but it's important to note that right from day one, he wasn't really hiding anything. He was pretty confident with who he was, and it was kind of like, you know, take it or leave it. I think he felt emboldened by David Bowie, but I don't think he was entirely confident in his sexuality or you know and we'll get into this probably he didn't even know you know the vocabulary that we have now you know gender fluid gender identity I mean all of these things were not available at that time that wasn't something that they would have considered in the same way that we do now yeah and I wouldn't actually categorize him in either of the terms I used but anyway he he looked really super duper unique Everybody was drawn to him, including Malcolm McLaren, the former manager of the Sex Pistols. Yeah, what a character that guy is. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I mean, anybody who knows his name, just instantly, it's like an eye roll with a chuckle because... just nod. Mm -hmm. Holy moly, talk about personalities. Right? It's the kind of person where you, you know they're interesting, but also... You have to kind of like rub your temples constantly if you're going to be around them and just like take deep breaths. It's intense. Uh, It reminds me of kind of the same chaotic energy of Factory Records. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also reminds me of Phil Spector. Like you just don't know if somebody's going to stab you or pat you on the back because it's just kind of insanity. Maybe they'll give you a million dollars or maybe they'll put you in a grave in their backyard. Exactly. And that's the vibe I get from him for <laughs> <Yes>. sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Have you ever met anybody like that in real life? I have. For yeah. sure. That uh that guy who ran a gallery. <gasps> oh yes. That was probably the closest I've ever come to getting a glimpse into somebody of a similar kind of lifestyle Mm -hmm. and and just pure insanity because he could be both simultaneously incredibly supportive and also like he's going to stab you at any given time Mm -hmm. it was wild and magnetic he would just draw people to him and then it would be like but why so i've seen this on a small scale i can't imagine what it's like on a grander scale yeah it's got to be intense So McLaren spotted Boy George. I mean, how could you not? He invited him, actually, to perform with his little band, Bow Wow Wow. I wish we could really get into that whole split with Adam and the Ants and everything, but we can't because... Yeah, I fell down that rabbit hole for a while. And I'm like, this is its own separate episode because I love both those bands. Mm -hmm. But let's just say this is the scene that he's running in right now. Yeah, so it's already a complicated situation. And they're like, let's add Boy George to the mix. (laughs) But he wasn't Boy George. He wasn't even called Boy George yet. No, he was just George. And then when he was working with Bow Wow Wow, he went under the pseudonym Lieutenant Lush, which... Isn't that something that Malcolm came up with? Yeah. Okay, that sounds like a Malcolm name. But yeah, it's dumb. Yeah, this uh, was one of these weird ideas that Crazy Malcolm came up with and just inserted a new member into the band. Can and you the imagine? band outright rejected it yeah. from day one. So it was not a lasting gig. <laughs> no. And uh, Annabella, the lead singer, was just like simply not a fan of Boy George. Well, he was basically taking over co-lead role. I mean, imagine and, that. 
I think they only had a few shows together. Yeah, but... He only played a couple shows before he absolutely got the boat, the boot because uh, they, yeah, they weren't going to have it. Well, yeah, he is made to be a lead. And when you put two of those people together, you're not going to get a positive situation. Well, and the fans, you know, Boy George later said that in those shows that he was playing with Bow Wow Wow, like the fans were like, who is this character? Get him off stage. <laughs> He's not part of the band. Yeah. So I felt bad because I don't think it was his doing. It's not like he put to do this it was more like he just had something about him and everybody knew it they just didn't know where to put him yet well and he was taking an opportunity yeah i mean you have to remember he was squatting at this time he was surviving so whatever he took this opportunity because holy smokes if it worked out great if not still squatting so fine obviously it didn't work out and he was sort of at a crossroads in his life after he was kicked out of the band both personally and professionally because he went through a pretty serious breakup around the same time so he was like ripe for either a rise or a fall or in boy george's case several (laughs) So this would have been his late teens, early 20s, correct? Yeah, he was so young. Yeah, they all were. It was kind of shocking when you think about <laughs> I it. I know. Giving that much money to, to somebody that age. Oh. Yikes. So where we're really talking about, the year is around 1981. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at right now. So we're getting into the 80s. But that was the lead up, the, the 70s, really, which was an exciting time. It really was in music and fashion and art. But we're now in the 80s and... Boy George, still called George at this point, has big plans. He is not going to settle for anything less. He's not toning down his look. He's working in a coat room at the club, at the Blitz Club. Yeah. And I also, you'll find this out when you watch the movie or look at documentaries. <laughs> he also notoriously would just take people's jackets and rob them, outright rob them, just take what was ever in their pockets because... He's squatting. Like, he's just trying to make he's a living. He's desperate, yeah. He's, like, almost homeless, so... And all of these drunk people just drop their pocket... Or drop their coats off, and he's like, Oh, what's this? Yeah. It's some lipstick and $5. Okay. Yeah, but he's meeting a lot of interesting personalities, and a lot of famous people are coming through at this mm-hmm. time. So, you know, Billy Idol and Adam Ant, all these people are passing right by him. They know who he is. He knows who they are. Even though there's a lot more to this story, we're going to skip past this because there's just stories just too big. Yeah. What's important is people were noticing him, like I said. And on one fateful night, <laughs> he's sitting there in the club. I don't think he was working at the time. I think he was just hanging out after a shift or something like that. And a guy named Mikey Craig, who was a bassist, came up to him and said, as he puts it, as Boy George later recalled, pretty bluntly, Hey, uh, I play bass. Do you want to be in a band? And Boy George has just coming out of Bow Wow Wow and had nothing going on. So he was like, sure, why not? You look interesting. The two of them decided that they would form a band out of nowhere. Isn't this interesting? This is something that really struck me is that he he did a couple of performances with Bow Wow Wow. And prior to that, beyond liking music... There's not really anything there musically. Not musically, but there is something just pulling people towards him. Yes. And I can say just because I've been in bands my entire life, when you play shows with other bands or you're just going club to club playing shows, you're sitting there and you're looking around at the crowd in front of you or you're meeting other band members and there's always that person that just stands out. Mm -hmm. And I would think like, I don't even know if you're good at your instrument, but you look interesting and i would be in a band with you just because you're interesting because you're literally magnetic you pull people to you yeah now make that times a hundred (laughs) because it's boy george in his prime right now yeah mikey comes to him offers to start a band and they say yes which means they need to start putting people together so we're at the very early stages of what will become culture club next they look for a drummer and who is recommended is a guy named john moss And he had already done his time in the scene. He'd been in several bands. Most notably, he was in a band called London. Then he played with the Stranglers. He even did a bit of time with the Damned Mm -hmm. and with Adam and the Ants. So he was kind of a local fixture. And Boy George already knew who he was because he had seen him in a magazine and thought he was really cute. And so when he was recommended, he was like, ah, that cute drummer. Perfect. And so he said... 
He was very nervous, but he called him up out of the blue and said, here's who I am. I've got a bass player. We're starting a band. Do you want to play drums? And John invited him over. And of course, as we all know, with the story of Culture Club, the two hit it off right away, uh, were instantly infatuated with each other. So John was now going to be the drummer, which meant they only had left a guitarist. And that guitarist was Roy Hay. I don't really know his backstory. He was working at an insurance company and kind of playing in local bands. He's kind of more mysterious, but he's gone on to do a lot. And he uh, was introduced by a fellow colleague that worked in the insurance uh, office hmm. who knew who Boy George was. And that was that. And so they had the four Crazy. of them together. What is funny about this is that the four could not have been more different. I mean, they were really a weird group to be pushed together. Yes. The only unifying thing was all four desperately wanted to be in a band. They all wanted to like make it be famous and so they just said well instead of trying to adapt to one or the other let's just embrace this and they were so weird and eccentric you had a a, you know a british jamaican you had a a cross-dressing you know gay man you had a um jewish person and then this guy who looked like he was out of like a 50s street gang and their music also was just as eclectic it was like reggae and post-punk and all this kind of stuff so they joked that they you know would call themselves culture club because it was just so bizarre and it actually worked to their advantage and it was a really fitting name and so by 1981 the culture club was created and formed So the year they formed, they put together a couple songs and EMI, the record label, paid for a few demos and then passed on them, which cracks me up going forward because this isn't like, oh, they kind of had a hit. Uh, Spoiler alert, at one point in the mid 80s, they were the actual biggest band in the world. So for EMI to go, thanks, but no thanks. (laughs) Whoever passed on that. (laughs) They had to, like, self-flagellate in the EMI basement for a year. I just love those stories of some executive being high and mighty and being like, "Mm, nah. I know music in the 1980s, and this is not the direction. This is not where the pulse is. Well, Virgin Records did see it. They saw all of it right away Mm. and were like, yes. So they signed them in 81, and that was just for UK. And then the US uh, distribution was handled by Epic Records. So they had a deal now. And they went into the studio, 1982, so they're just into their very second year as a band. They released two singles, and they just didn't go anywhere. They weren't sticking yet. And then all of that changed with the release of their third single, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me?, which shot straight to number one. And since it's a little dicey with using actual clips of songs on here with Uh uh, royalties and copyrights and stuff, We'll just kind of play fast and loose with a cover version of it from a movie we love. Here you go. I have danced. Ooh, I like her. How can love be real? Okay, R.I.P. Alexis. Now I want to watch that again. It's such a great movie. Yes. Uh, The cones! (laughs) Anyway, so Do You Really Want to Hurt Me shoots to number one. And of course, as time and time again with all these bands we cover from the 80s, guess what's going to break them? What? They got to go on top of the pops. Top of the pops! The difference is, prior to this, the single, the record, was being promoted with out Boy George on the cover because it had this reggae sound and they just want some weird looking white guy on the front. So the radios were just playing it, but not knowing who was actually performing it. (laughs) And then Top of the Pops happens and it captivated a nation. And that Uh is not an overstatement. Like it was insane, the reaction, because the song is crazy catchy, but nobody and you 
you think this is like, okay, whatever. There was David Bowie. There were all these characters. Mm -hmm. Nothing like Boy George had ever been seen in this way. This extreme, we'll say, where it wasn't like a little androgynous. As I was reading interviews with critics of the time who saw this performance. Yeah. And they were saying the difference was you never questioned that David Bowie was still a man, just kind of playing with makeup. Whereas they just had no idea what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. And that was the recipe for success. Because they already had a hit. And this catapulted them overnight into the like mega stratosphere. Yeah. And the next day, and it would never let up, I mean, still, where they were instantly in every paper, every tabloid, like what is happening? Who are these people? Who is Boy George? His personality, his look was larger than life. And it really did happen that fast. I believe that because you have to go back to the 80s. It's easy to look at it with, as we say, 21st century eyes and be like, whatever. But in the 80s, we had man and woman. And that was that. And if you didn't fit into one of those roles very clearly... People had many a question. But on top of that, I think a lot of people saw themselves in his artistry and his creativity, in his androgyny. I think there was so much for people to uh, build upon, to inquire about. And then the music's just great. It really is. And what was an interesting reaction is his largest fan base were young girls. Mm Mm-hmm. They thought he was fascinating. I can also see where people wouldn't be entirely clear about his gender in the 80s. I can see where some people would be like, that's a girl. Yeah. Um, and, and in the 80s, of course, people only had those options available to them. Yeah. So it would have been quite confusing to the people of that time. And yeah, intriguing. It's also interesting to think about where we've come and where we've evolved in general, where If somebody comes out now and we see their image and it's androgynous, we don't know, nobody really cares much. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, okay, and we just move on and listen to the music. But in the 80s, look was everything. And to not have a definitive answer was even more intriguing and more fascinating. And it became this puzzle. And then it didn't help that he was getting tons of interviews and he was playing around with the press. He Mm -hmm. was messing with them and he was saying... You know, he doesn't have sex. He just prefers a cup of tea and he's asexual, which was making it even safer to listen to Culture Club. So he was gaining a huge audience by not being openly gay. It was smart. It was really smart by making the band larger than life and not dangerous or alienating any sort of audience. That single, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, went to number one, like I said, but it went in 27 countries to number one and reached number two in the U.S., which meant like they were certified massive stars now. And that was just their first hit single. Good gravy. Unlike most bands of the 80s that were fun, one hit wonders, this was not the case in Culture Club's story. October 1982, their debut album, Kissing to be Clever, comes out and it blew up. It spawned multiple top 10 hits. Uh, time i'll tumble for you it actually made them the first band since the beatles in the uk to have a bunch of like three top tens at one time in the charts and they sold like five million copies of that record worldwide just in that year alone i mean it was incredible how fast this all happened now lyrically if you know culture club um, they're catchy songs But the content of them, which people did not know at this time, is all about the drummer, John, because people did not know that John and George were in a relationship. Mm -hmm. So all these, do you really want to hurt me, time, these are all about their relationship, which lyrically is a goldmine for the band, Mm -hmm. but can be problematic if, you know, that's no longer an option, which we'll get to. They were in this relationship. They were keeping it secret, even though everybody knew about it that was around. And the band totally knew. The managers, the you know, the group, everybody was in on it, but they just all kept it under wraps because it would have been problematic at this time in 1982, 83. There were complications, though, because John very much wanted to keep it 
secret. He wanted mm-hmm. to preserve it for the band, protect the band. And I also think he was maybe a little conflicted about things. Yeah. Whereas George, there was no question. He was very much open around the people that were close with him and didn't understand why he had to keep just hiding this relationship. Yeah. He was a little bit more like, hey, let's just do this. To make matters worse, their relationship was not a good relationship. It was pretty rocky. It was incredibly dysfunctional. They were verbally, mentally, and most importantly, physically abusive to each other regularly. Like we mentioned earlier, Boy George was a scrapper. He he liked to fight, and he wouldn't really back down from people. They were just volatile people in each other's lives. They loved each other, but they also just could not be around each other at times. I mean, looking back on his early life, how what example was set for him yeah. for like sane, stable relationship? Yeah, and when you read the stories, I mean, John broke his hand like three times trying to, you know, hit him. They punched through walls. Ugh. They, you know, Boy George, as um, Mikey would say, Boy George would lock himself in, you know, the room before a show and be like, no, I'm not coming out because I hate you kind of idea. And then John would dip a rag in gasoline and then shove it under the door and light it on fire and try and literally smoke him out. I mean, it was not like normal fighting. It was pure insanity. That's dysfunctional. It was very dysfunctional. And as Mikey said, it also meant great lyrical content. Like. The other two members of the band said, look, it was annoying as hell because one day George is like, I'm over. I'm out of this band. The next day he's like, I love this band. And it was so based on their relationship. But that really was Culture Club. And so the other two members just said, as long as we were still writing music and getting hits, like... Getting those paychecks. Yeah, that's not really a problem. And he said the the lyrics just kept coming, too. It was easy to write to because it was just a goldmine. And so Mm -hmm. that's the underlying story of the Culture Club is the foundation is just pure chaos. You know, when I think about the relationship and the lyrics, I think, I feel like you can write one, like, super awesome love song about a stable relationship, but a chaotic relationship. (laughs) There's no end. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about the cure. Like, Robert Smith thrives <laughs> on depression. So when he got married and was happy, it was like, uh, what, what do I do? About? Yeah, I need something. I'm not an alcoholic anymore. I've got a wife. So, yeah, I could see that. Anyway, by 1983, their second album came out, Color by Numbers. And this, uh, this is, you know, they were already massive, but this was going to push them even higher. So Church of the Poison Mine is their leadoff single. Oh, yeah. It's a miracles on that same album, Victims. But they then get their biggest hit ever. What is it? Take a, a wild guess. I'm not going to. I hate quizzes. And now a band who've had more words written about them, had more photographs taken than any other in 1983. And also with the biggest hit single of the year, with Karma Chameleon, this is Culture Club. I've heard of that maybe <laughs> i think we listened to this on repeat when we were first dating a lot we really listened to a lot of boy george when we were first dating we did we really really did their music is so good i mean we're talking about his personality but really musically They're a great band. They're very catchy. They're all over the place, but somehow it works. And I think one of the tragic sides of Boy George's story in general is that his look was so over the top 
that it overshadowed not only the band, but his own talents as an actual vocalist. Yeah. It's a great singer. I was thinking about that exact same thing as I was researching this, because so much emphasis is put on his personal life and his looks. And yeah, it's over and over you hear that he's influenced by these people, but you never hear like he sang along every day or whatever. And he comes out a fully formed like musician. How does that happen? Yeah. So I think there probably was some sort of background that I could find no evidence of in my research. But he came out like swinging musically. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, his voice is definitely developed at this point, mm-hmm. And it's not like he's still figuring things out. No. This is the voice of the 80s right now. Totally. So we're in 1983. This uh, single shoots up to number one and is the biggest hit of 1983. In the UK, selling in that year alone, 955,000 copies in one year. So when I say they were then the biggest band in the world, they really were. The numbers globally were bonkers. They conquered Europe. They conquered America, Asia. They really did. I mean, as far as... given a throne. Yeah, they put a flag down and they were like, this is ours. (laughs) This will last for one year. Okay, this has all been really great to talk about stats and stuff, but there's only one stat that matters. What? (laughs) And that's this week's fun fact. This week's fun fact is for our Canadian listeners. Hey. (laughs) A little love, eh? Color by Numbers, their second album, became the first album in Canadian history to be certified diamond, which is one million sales. So there you go, Canadians. Diamond. You got your fun fact. Way to go, Toronto. (laughs) Okay, even though there's a ton more to Culture Club, we don't have time for that. This is on Boy George. Let's just say they achieved ridiculous amount of money and fame and they're all still in their early 20s (laughs) Uh, roy the guitarist was saying in an interview you know at 22 he's driving around a lamborghini and touring the world like it's ridiculous but with that like we know with all great stories there has to be a downfall this kind of reminds me of millie vanilli in a little way even though they were making their own music it's the same idea that the the rise and fall was so fast. You know, Culture Club lasted a little bit more. They were like five years, but still, it was really, really fast. The downfall started to happen in 1984. Jeez. And really, the biggest misstep that started the whole thing was they had really dominated America. By this point, they're all over the charts. Yeah. They even got like middle America. People thought it was okay to listen to them. Everybody thought it was okay. And it was really because there was no definitive answer on Boy George's sexuality. So as long as that was not really discussed, the elephant in the room, you could continue listening to Culture Ah. Club albums. What happened was in 1984, they won a whole string of awards, including a Grammy for Best New Artist. This was like the pinnacle, right? Mm -hmm. And in the acceptance speech... Boy George with his typical wit, and, um, you know, he loves to say funny things. This is what he said in the acceptance speech for the Grammy in front of all of, really, the world. Thank you, America. You've got, you've got taste, style, and you know a good drag queen when you see one. <laughs> and in that moment, there was a collective gasp from everybody what? involved because it had happened. How is that even... Well, that's what he said. He was like, how could you even wonder? But keep in mind, people just didn't, they all still figured, hey, man, he's just a weird, fun singer. Yeah. It's all about good times and fashion. Silly Joel from Wisconsin. He didn't know what that was. Yeah. And so they really can trace this moment being kind of the beginning of people going, I'm not really comfortable with this. I have to make a moral judgment. I have to make a judgment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is where things start to kind of fade a little. Also at this time, 1984, they're coming off of a massive tour. They're exhausted, but they're being pressured to do a follow-up album, which is always the case. So in 84, they released their third album called Waking Up with the House on Fire, which 
did get a hit right away, but musically, the whole album is just a total misstep. It's just a flop. It's not there. It's not happening. And all the bands said that. They were like, we were just tired. We were forced. And it just didn't work. Sure. So things are starting to fall apart. I mean, Boy George, personally... I was doing okay. He was invited the same year to sing on that song, Do You Know It's Christmas, to raise money for famine in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Oh, he is pretty special in that video. Well, it became the highest selling single of all time in the UK. So. Good grief. <laughs> yeah. Calm down about Christmas, England. <laughs> they really love their Christmas songs. I guess. But because of this, everything's falling apart. The relationship was also starting to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And when things fall apart, you start to make bad decisions. He's losing his longtime partner and his album is going down the tubes. What do you do in those situations? So obviously it's the 1980s. Boy George has no other choice but to become completely addicted to heroin and a slew of other drugs. <laughs> no, no other choice. <laughs> no. Well, what happened was he was surrounding himself by people who started doing a lot of heroin. And yeah. up until this point, this is a little side note that I was surprised to find out. All the bands said this. He was very anti-drugs up until this point. Yep. So this took everybody by surprise. This was way out of character. But he just was surrounding himself with a different crowd now. Yeah, well, and he has to numb himself. Everything is out of control. Like, this is to 11. Everything is turned to 11. So he is obviously going to turn to drugs. It's the 80s. It's going to happen. And eventually he would attempt to perform while he was, like, out of his mind. Never a good idea. No. His friends and family were obviously concerned. He was was in a downward spiral. Yeah. Like, no other way to put it. Uh, I mean, with something like that, that level of fame and notoriety, that's like a pressure cooker. Something's got to give. And it's, unfortunately, him. Uh, And to make, like, matters so much worse, his brother, in what I really want to believe was, like, a well-meaning attempt to save Boy George, but probably wasn't so much that. I feel like it was kind of a grab for some of that glory, too. I don't know. I think it was a cash grab, honestly. His brother appeared on on television to talk about Boy George's drug addiction. Yeah, which had been completely... Denied. uh, Yeah, totally denied and unknown at this point. So speculated for sure, but not confirmed. Yeah, Boy George was actively denying it as every time he was asked. And uh, either way, whatever his brother's intention was, Boy George ended up arrested for possession of heroin in 1986. So, I mean, after that, he can't really deny anymore. That same year, uh, another musician was found dead in Boy George's home, having died from an overdose. And another friend died from an overdose at a party. So Boy George was pretty much backed into a corner and went into treatment at this point. Yeah, this was, I would say, probably the the low point where everything was just falling apart. They had released a fourth album and it just completely was a total flop and failure. And at that point, he and John's relationship, they didn't want to be around each other anymore. Sure. So that's when he officially said, I'm done. And that's when he fell into massive drug use. So this is all happening around the same time, 1986. Just totally imploding. Luckily, as far as the Boy George story goes, he was able to get treatment, was able to kind of kick his heroin addiction, and was really starting to put things back together pretty quickly because by 1987, he released a solo record called Sold, and his single went to number one in the UK, which wow. is wild. Yeah. So he, in an interview I listened to, he said he felt like the reason why the record went so well, though, was more of a sympathy buy from fans because the tabloids were horrible to him. Like once they mm-hmm. were, as is always the case, once they turned on him as a drug addict, you know, Junkie George was the name he got for years. Yeah. Once they turned, they were brutal and relentless. And he was saying that he felt like this comeback idea 
people were rallying behind him and that's what really helped push this record up in sales. Yeah. He doesn't know if it was really that people, you know, enjoyed the record as much as just they believed that he had maybe been been wrong. And that reminds me a lot of our Pee-wee episode with Paul Rubens mm-hmm. and stuff too, this backlash of the media and this feeding frenzy. I was listening to an interview with one of the journalists from the time and they were saying that no band is above the media as a whole. Sure. And if the media wants to take you down, they will. What's shocking to me, though, and again, we're looking at it through our contemporary perspective, but they were just like, oh, he's a junkie. Let's write him off. Yeah. That's a person who needs help. That is a person desperate for help. And they're like escalating the situation in such a negative and hurtful way like i i know and also in england that their paparazzi are notoriously awful their papers are notoriously awful can you imagine being a person like lost to the throes of addiction and facing that level of backlash that i mean that's a really potent and volatile uh, combination and you know as I got to this point in the history like my heart ached for him I just felt so sad because yes he had a buttload of money and success but like what does that matter you know his life is in actual shambles yeah and another thing that's sad about all that is what does he have he's got his music that's what he's good at he's Mm -hmm. a, a songwriter he's a singer and if he can't turn to music, what can he turn to? So here he cleans himself up and he puts out an album and he said in England, but I would I would add to this and say this isn't unique to England. This is very much an American thing, too, that once you've achieved massive success, if you have a downfall and then try and make a comeback, it's very difficult because people say basically like you had your shot. Give somebody yeah. else a try now, like go away. You know, you're done with. And he said it was very difficult to try and reestablish himself after that, because if you're not still on top, you're done. You got your millions go away. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was nice that he was able to kick this habit, put out an album and start to kind of get back on track. In 1989, he formed a group called Jesus Loves You, and he was going under this name, Angela Dust. And he became involved with Hare Krishna and all this stuff. So this is a very interesting transitional time in his life and identity trying to figure out like what does actually happen post culture club not just a solo album but like who is he i suppose now we should also talk about boy george's sexuality as obviously much was made of it in the 80s in a 1985 interview with joan rivers he came out and said he was bisexual because that was like the super risky truth that he was going to tell. But in 1995, because either he had himself come to the realization that he was gay, or he simply at that point felt safe enough to come out, he did. He revealed that he was gay in his book, Take It Like a Man. In that same book, he also revealed that he had had relationships with Kirk Brandon and John Moss. Okay. Kirk Brandon was like a punk musician. Right. Uh, he was not pleased to be included in this book because he did not want to be outed as gay or bisexual, whatever. And he actually sued Boy George for libel. Unfortunately for him, he lost big time. And he ended up having to file for bankruptcy, which unfortunately meant Boy George had to pay uh, court costs. But he it, should have just owned it, you know? I mean, I, like, Nobody would have cared. Yeah. Who cares? There's also, when you go back and look, like so much evidence too, like photos of them together and everything. So it is really weird. It's interesting that he chose 1995. You know, yeah. his career was still building because we didn't mention, but in 92, he had a massive hit with the movie The Crying Game. Oh, yeah. You know, he did that single, which was, <laughs> I always think of uh, Ace Ventura, but... It's a really good song and his voice is incredible in that song. And I just, so it's nice because I think people forget that. Yeah, go listen to that He was still very much relevant and still very much having huge hits as a solo artist. So I think he was starting to become more and more confident of like, 
you know, I'm famous for just being famous now. I'm going to just own who I am. Yeah, or just like let let yourself live because life's hard enough. But so to kind of round out this picture, let's look what he's done in the current century. In 2005, he kind of fell off the wagon and was arrested for possession of cocaine. Now, that's up for debate. I understand. But he was also arrested for falsely reporting a burglary. He was only sentenced for the burglary, not the cocaine. So he was around cocaine in 2005. Let's just say that. I think that's what's funny is that the... um official charge was like wasting police officers time or something like that it was falsely reporting a right burglary. but basically had he have been convicted for cocaine possession he would have served up to 20 years in prison yeah he ended up with uh, a fine community service and uh rehab court mandated yeah. rehab so five days community service now this is interesting i watched a documentary from 2006 which They followed him around in the months leading up to the conviction and what was going to be his sentence. And they didn't quite know what it was going to be. Just a film crew. Okay. And they did this documentary called The Madness of Boy George. Whoa. And I watched it. It's very self-serving. I'm really protective of, uh, you know, celebrities that get thrown under the bus over everything. Mm -hmm. And I often think with documentaries, they try and spin it to kind of whatever they can do to get numbers and i feel like they really exploited him in this documentary and he actually like hated the way it turned out and had to immediately do follow-ups of like okay let me just talk about this kind of thing but it was a weird documentary but it really does show his public service in the streets so how they charged him with this was to sentence him to five days community service sweeping the streets of new york oh yeah that's not gonna go well with the paparazzi and what's interesting about this documentary is they follow it happening in real life they told him in the sentencing that he would be in this secluded area that nobody knows undisclosed he would just have to go and and work and come back when he arrived tons of paparazzi which meant they fully set him up to make it a show yep what bothers me about this is how is that helpful to somebody struggling with drugs? Like it isn't at it all. Isn't. This and is he, just an absolute failure. Well, ultimately he was they reassigned him because that was such a chaotic mess. Yeah. He didn't have to end up solving or spending the rest of his time sweeping streets in public. I mean, this was all one just giant show. Yeah. And it and he was really just the pawn in it. So guy. it's a really weird situation because ultimately I, I truly believe he didn't deserve any of that. I thought it was ridiculous. It was well, over the top. He should have received a normal kind of court sentence and then received some sort of, you know, additional treatment or help instead of being like put out there in the public, dangled re- out there as this like, ha ha, let's look at this washed up celebrity. I remember that with Naomi Campbell. I think she like slapped somebody, the model. And I remember... In the, I don't even know, whenever it was she did it, like videos popping up on the actual news, not like entertainment news, but on the actual news of her doing her weird community service. And I was like, what is this? Who cares? Yeah. And if a person is truly suffering enough that they are serving time, what kind of freakish community are we in where we're like, we got to watch that person, that drug addicted person sweep a street or whatever. Yeah. Like get them some help, please. Yeah. I thought it was very telling of the culture of media and Mm -hmm. media consumption and what we want and what we pay for. And, just how twisted and kind of gross it is, you know? It was just, yeah. This was really just a big circus. and But he did it. He did the five days and, and went on with his life. You know, I, I just I felt like that whole situation was really bizarre. Yeah, but before you're entirely on the, like, Boy George is a special guy, he just needs help. Uh, in 2008, he was convicted, actually convicted of assault and false imprisonment of a man who is described as Norwegian model and male escort. So, well, I would back up and say I'm not on the bandwagon of Boy George can do no wrong. He's clearly got a very long history of physically abusing 
everybody around him who gets in his way and mm-hmm. drug addiction. I guess what I was saying is I felt like the sentencing, uh, putting a drug addict out to just sweep streets while paparazzi took photos was maybe not an appropriate no. um, sentence. I agree. And I agree that there is empathy to be given to a person who is struggling. And people who are struggling make awful choices sometimes. And in this case, it was that he was, uh, I guess he was apparently had asked this man to be a model but it ended with the escort tied to a bed and being beaten with a metal chain. So Boy George was sentenced to a year and a half, but actually only served four months in prison. So he spent some time in jail for this. It was not a small thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's the story of his entire life is just pure chaos. It's just a really, you know, riding fast kind of thing. You know, uh, Mikey said in, in a documentary about when he found out he was addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm. He said, it's totally Boy George to go from being the guy who yells at somebody for smoking a joint to, you know, a two months later being addicted to heroin. That that's how he lives his life is just like pure chaos. Has he ever had stable ground? No, he doesn't even know what that looks like. So expecting a person born into chaos to like find redemption and stability and normalcy, it's it's a big ask. And it's if it happens, it's going to take a lot of time. But it would seem currently, or at least that by 2012, he has been working to turn his life around. So he converted to Buddhism and became in, like deeply involved in spiritual chanting, a practice that he claims to have helped keep him sober. And he also has adopted a raw and, as you and I fully support, vegan diet. <laughs> and actually, in earlier, he wrote a and released a macrobiotic cookbook. Oh, weird. So he's kind of all over the place. Well, and one thing that we didn't even touch on was a second career, like an actual career that he has starting in the early 90s, a post-culture club. He became a DJ, like a world-renowned yeah. celebrity DJ, and traveled everywhere DJing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of the problem is that he tried to stay clean, but he was also in club culture, where he belongs, where he knows. And club culture, as you know, is all about drug use. So mm-hmm. I felt like he was set up to be tempted no matter what with his second career. Like you're putting yourself into the snake pit and then just hoping that you don't relapse. And one of the things that was interesting was part of that 2005-2006 slip up was rooted in another downfall. Like it seems like he goes through these cycles Mm -hmm. like everybody where you make bad decisions when you're feeling down and depressed and hopeless and then you make good decisions when you're not. Mm -hmm. But in... In 2002, he had done this musical called Taboo. Did you ever read about Mm -hmm. that? And it was a huge hit in London. And then Rosie O'Donnell, of all people, were like, oh, we should bring it to the U.S. on Broadway. And brought it over and completely changed it, ruined it. It was a huge flop. And I think that's what really started that secondary Mm. decline was he had kind of like lost everything again. Yeah. And he just turned to what worked in the past. And so... He's got this very complicated life of just ups and downs, but yet he's consistently still put out music and stayed creative. And man, what a fascinating character. Yeah, I would say like in conclusion or ultimately, I feel like he is slowly moving upwards, but he is coming from a base level of chaos. And so he's had to like fight for any stability and any peace he gets and um you know maybe it's just a reminder to treat everyone with empathy because you don't know their story but he's had like the most extreme highs and lows in his life it is shocking it is very shocking you know it's we talking about him personally like, like you were just saying, he's gone on to do tons of stuff. He's been on The Voice in UK and yeah, Australia. Yeah, he's done a lot of reality TV. Did a duet with in 2005 with Anthony and the Johnson, which was oh, amazing. Yeah. Such a great record, too. So he's done all these cool things. But what about, like, Culture Club? Like, mm-hmm. they went on to do their own things, too. They reformed. We didn't even discuss that. They, from time to time, will randomly reform and do shows. They even put out an album in 98 that went straight up the charts again. So... 
this has never really left his life. Culture no. Club and and this whole Boy George persona has always been there. That's just who he is and it's what he knows. Mm-hmm. He is a, a flawed character and he owns that. And that's mm-hmm. one thing is some of these people when we talk about like Millie Vanilli, we felt like we're very much a product of being manipulated Aww. by, you know, yeah. money and the man. Uh, the Paul Rubens story was very much just a product of they needed somebody to, you know, burn Throw at the stake. The Boy George, on the other hand, he will openly say, like, I caused this. I was I was the reason I am in this situation. Mm-hmm. But it's also my situation to experience. And I don't need people documenting it. I don't need people yeah. like telling me about it and stuff. So that's the one thing that I will say is I don't condone his behavior of abuse sure. and drug use and everything else. But I do appreciate that he is not trying to pretend to be somebody he's not. Mm-hmm. He's just navigating this world the way he can. Aren't we all, though? Aren't we all? And in the process has made some really great music uh, and has become this kind of cultural phenomenon that will always be remembered when you think of the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of the big ones on there. He's the he's got a face on the eighties Mount Rushmore for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everybody, we could go on, but we really don't need to. Uh, this was just a really interesting overview mm-hmm. of a very eccentric and dynamic character. Yes, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you have different opinions, great. If you want, keep to, it to yourself. Yeah, keep it to yourself. We did Ugh. our work. If you want to check out his music, I strongly recommend it. Revisit. Things like the Culture Club. I mean, really listen to it for the music, not just his look. And uh, they were doing some great stuff. Also, put your eyeballs on his look. Yeah. And then next time you go to the grocery store, give it 4% of his effort. Just. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I will say. Wash your armpits and like. Do anything. Brush your hair. Yeah. You don't have to be Boy George in public, but at least brush your hair. Give it 4% Boy George effort. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, that is this episode on the life of Boy George. Mm-hmm. Boy, that was fun. That was really fun. So interesting. It was a lot to take in, a lot to gloss over, too, because it was just too much. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you like what you heard, as always, you can follow us, rate, review, subscribe. Mm-hmm. We are at lasergraves.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. We did have a couple listeners contact us about um, streaming sites we weren't on, so I've tried to correct that. So now we're even more available. We're everywhere. We're everywhere. We're like Gary Busey, hider in the house, peeking through your window. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but, uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Lasergraves. You can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Lasergraves. As always, follow our friends, Bad Taste Video Podcast, Reconsidimation, like we said, all kinds of people. I'm not going to list them all right now, but we share their shows and our stories. And we will be back in two weeks with our next episode. I don't know what it's going to be on. The early life of Hugh Grant. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's just going to be us in total silence for 40 minutes, uh, fluttering our eyelashes. <laughs> And it all comes back to about a boy. (laughs) Told you we'd tie it in. All right. See you next time. Bye. (laughs)